What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Nicholas Horbacheski. Nick is the founder and CEO of the Drone Racing League, the world's premier professional drone racing property. Before founding DRL in 2015, Nick served as the chief revenue officer of Tough Mudder, which he grew to over 60 global events and $100 million in revenue during his time there. Nick and I discussed the growth of drone racing globally, how he turned a niche activity into a nine-figure business, why it's important to own your own tech stack, the hardest challenges he has faced along the way, and much more. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8Sleep. 8Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and nature's best medicine. Consistent good sleep can help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues, yet still more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep and temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot, but now I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have ever before, all thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. The result? Eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. The Pod Pro covered by Eight Sleep is so popular that it has garnered attention from CEOs, high performers such as Olympic gold medalist Red Gerard, and top CrossFit athletes, including the 2021 fittest man on earth, Justin Medoras, and UFC heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. They're all powered by Eight Sleep to make the most of their workouts and recovery. Remember, good sleep is the ultimate game changer. So go to eightsleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout. Eight Sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and the UK. All right, let's get into this episode. 
Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, everyone. I'm here with Nick Horbacheski, and I am certain I got that right because I asked him right before we started the podcast. Nick, how are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. You nailed it. All right. Good to hear. All right. I'm excited to talk to you. I have become a big fan of drones in general. I feel like I see them on social media every day now, whether it is sports teams giving us tours of their facilities or the Drone Racing League, which you are the founder of and the CEO of. So maybe let's start before we get into DRL specifically. If we could start with your background, I think that that's probably helpful context, just who you are, where you came from, what you did prior to this. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in Boston and prior to founding DRL, I worked across a range of industries. I, I worked in film production. I was a consultant for a while. I ended up as the chief information officer at a large reseller of technology. And then just prior to, to DRL, I was the chief revenue officer at Tough Mudder, the global mud run series. So I have this sort of amalgamation background of, of sports and technology and media production, all of which are areas I'm really passionate about. And so that's one of the reasons that DRL was such an interesting thing for me because it sort of it married together all those different interests into a single business. Were you playing around with drones before this? Like, I feel like you have to have some inherent interest in drones to start a drone league. Yeah, no, I was fascinated by drones. And when I when I worked in technology sales, we resold consumer technology and products into the government space. And we were one of the first companies to start selling consumer drones for government use. And it was really back before you thought of sort of individuals owning drones and, and using them. And it, it was so they were so powerful. I mean, the feedback from our customers that they were such a unique capability, they were so powerful. It definitely got me fascinated with drones from the earliest days. And I just, you know, I, I sort of tracked the evolution of drone technology. I was very interested in it. And then it was sort of in late 2014, you started to have these videos go viral of people with these homemade drones racing them. In particular, there's a video from and people in a forest in France racing them around. And it just was incredibly compelling. And it, it made it clear that people had adapted this drone technology for this sport purpose. And it was getting a lot of traction. If we look at it from like a, a macro level first, how big is the drone market in total, like both on a consumer and an enterprise level? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, it's huge, right? I mean, there are millions and millions of drones being sold and used around the world. It's billions and billions of dollars, right? I mean, you have multiple large drone manufacturers between DJI and Parrot and Skydio here in the States, all of whom are making incredible technology. And then you have a huge long tail of people making more specialized, smaller drones. And that doesn't even roll in the community of people that build their own drones. So there's a whole community of people that, you know, buy parts off the internet and assemble their own drones and use them for either filming videos or filming sports or whatever they want to do. So it's, you know, it's really incredible how many people out there know how to fly a drone. You know, one of the fun things about DRL, I would say, is, you know, at the end of our season, we crown a world champion, and that's the greatest drone pilot on the planet. And that's something that means something. I mean, in the in the years since when I started DRL in 2015, even in 2015, I, I used to joke, you know, one of the reasons I started the business is because I could say to my mother, we're going to crown the greatest drone pilot on the planet. And that meant something to her, even though she'd never flown a drone, she probably had never even seen a drone at that point. But that concept resonates right away. People get drones, they're in the zeitgeist, they're seeing content from drones, and now you see it spreading everywhere, right? I mean, there's all these videos going viral of people flying around bowling alleys or stadiums 
you know, they're using drones to film music videos, they're using to film movies, and people are very used to, they see it and they're like, oh, that's a drone shot. I know that, which is pretty wild. I mean, this is a technology that really has sort of integrated itself into every aspect of our lives in the last seven years. This may be a stupid question in some regard because I've never actually flown a drone myself, but what is the difference between a pilot that is doing the videos that we see online for sports stadiums or bowling alleys or whatever it might be versus a world champion in your league? So I think it's different applications of the same skill, but sometimes they're the same pilots, right? So, you know, we've had our champion pilots film Justin Bieber's music videos. Two of our pilots were just involved in filming the visuals for the new movie Ambulance. So, you know, you are seeing the same pilots applying those skills. I think the difference is, you know, when we put them on the race course, we're asking them to absolutely maximize performance. They need to get from point A to point B as fast as possible through these very cool, complex, three-dimensional courses. Whereas when they're filming for visual, when you're trying to either film a video or take a picture, it's about the precision. It's about keeping it in the shot, right? It's, it's about the subject of what you're doing as opposed to just the flying. But what I love about FPV videos, I think they're melding them together. I think if you think about that, video of the bowling alley that went viral of, of people flying around FPV. It's a combination of how cool the visual is and that it's being filmed in a way that if you'd never see a drone before, you'd be like, how is this even possible, right? Like, it's crazy. This camera's flying through the air. It's flying. It's going behind the bowling alley. It's following the ball down. Like, it, it can capture the world from a perspective that there just isn't any other equivalent camera technology today. And so it's giving people new, unique visuals. And I think that's why these videos are going viral. Did you see the one at Tesla's new factory in, I think it's Berlin? Yeah. It went through one of the machines. Yeah. And I literally, I, I mentioned it because I had that same thought that you just mentioned, which was, I can't even believe that this is possible, that it was in a machine basically flowing around the machine floating. It's something that you certainly couldn't do with a regular camera and didn't even seem possible with a drone. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Those are the moments where you say, this either has to be CGI or we've got something new on our hands because I've never seen this before. And, you know, there's a lot of incredible camera technology, right? There's robotically controlled cameras. There's cameras on cables that can go really fast. There's the spider cams that, that hover above the NFL field and sort of capture it. And like those have expanded our visual universe. This is like an order of magnitude change. Like the idea of saying they can fly around the Tesla building, through the door, through a machine, next to a person, all in one continuous shot. It's just wild. Yeah, I agree with that. So I want to talk a little bit more about some of the applications later on maybe, but let's start with DRL specifically. So you're the chief revenue officer of Tough Mudder, I believe in 2015 or around that time at least. You leave and you start the DRL. Talk me through that process a little bit of actually getting the league off the ground. Yeah. So I I saw some of these viral videos in 2014. In 2015, I left Tough Mudder and I was like, I want to find something new in sports. And I was actually looking at a whole range of things. Esports was really kind of getting its footing then. But I, I kept getting drawn back to this drone racing idea of sort of like this was a really unique, special sport. And I had a chance to go see like an amateur drone race, just some friends getting together with their homemade drones at this field behind a Home Depot in Long Island. And I just thought it was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen. I mean, it, there were, you know, moments of it that really reminded me of Star Wars where the drones passed right in front of you. But it was still it was very amateur. It was very hobbyist. And, and you know, the question in my mind is, how do we create a version of this that lets us put it on TV or that people will come and sit in a stadium and, and want to watch. And I had a lot of thoughts about how that was going to happen. But I think, you know, the next several months of this journey was really this discovery that the barrier to preventing that from happening was actually technology. That while amateur hobbyist technology existed that allowed people to do a race behind a Home Depot in Long Island, 
there wasn't a version that would be so robust, so industrialized, that it would let you do it in front of an audience or put it on TV. And really, in the early days of DRL, we became a technology company. We were almost exclusively focused on creating the technology to make this possible. The best part of my job, the most fun part of the last seven years is I took this sort of concept of, of something on paper of, and then made this thing real. And we, you can come to one of our events now, and it really does feel like a real-life video game or real-life Star Wars. But the journey to do that was about delivering on those expectations. I talk about how in the early days of DRL, I would go around with literally like a PowerPoint direct with these like hand-drawn visuals of like what a drone race might be. And I'd show them to people and they would get so excited and they would take the deck and be like, it's going to be like Star Wars and they're going to be flying in front of each other. And, it, and it's going to remind me of pod racing. And I just thought, wow, like people are primed for this sport, but they, their expectations are so high, right? I mean, the pod racing scene in Star Wars was so expensive. It was all CGI. Like the idea that I'm going to like whip off some sport that does that. But what it, what it really speaks to is, is people's expectation is that if they're going to see something that feels futuristic, amazing, flying robots competing, the tech can't be in the way. And so we had to set out to build this tech. And, and ultimately, you know, I, to this day, the core of DRL is a technology company creating the technology that is robust enough to deliver the experiences that make people think of Star Wars and not sort of an amateur hobbyist race in a field behind Home Depot. Yeah. And how has the growth of the audience trended over time? I'm assuming when you start in 2015, it's relatively small, not only from people that are interested in, in actually the application of flying drones, but how many people you guys are able to recruit to watch the races. I know it's grown pretty tremendously over the last several years. Talk me through just kind of how that has evolved over time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely is an evolution. You know, we launched a sport that almost no one had ever heard of in 2015. And then we had to create a version of it that was exciting and compelling that would, that would draw people in. I mean, no one's the fan of a new sport on day one. They haven't even seen it yet. So we had to create something it was compelling and then tell the stories of the challenge and the competition, the pilots that would allow them to get drawn into it as a fan. And, and, you know, from those early days of trying to do it in 2015, of trying to even make a product that would meet people's expectations, you, you know, the league went on 2016, we start broadcasting on ESPN. So we're on TV. Then we switched to a global broadcast we're on TV in Europe. You know, and you flash forward to today, we're on NBC here in the States. We're on TV in over 150 countries. We have tens of millions of people watching every season, 200 million fans around the world. So it's sort of this growth, but it's, it's a journey where you have to introduce people to the sport. You need to get them excited about it. You need to get them following it. You need to get them watching it. You need to get them interacting with you. I mean, it's, it's building a fan base step by step. We have a huge advantage with DRL that it's very interesting. It's compelling. It's, it grabs people visually. So you know, a lot of our fans sort of were like, hey, I, I saw this on TV and I was like, wow, what is this? And then I got really sucked into it. So we, we have a great advantage there that, you know, when people are exposed to DRL's content, they tend to want to dive deeper into what we're doing. Gotcha. And when you talk to investors, I know you guys have raised some money and maybe you want to talk through some of the investors and, and exactly who they are and whatnot. But ultimately, what are they excited about when you go out and you talk to to these companies and these entities and the investment firms? What are they excited about when it comes to DRL? They are excited about a lot of things. I, you know, I think we've raised money from great partners and I think consistently across them is a piece of it. We're building something new, right? So we're building a new sport. We're building a sport that speaks very specifically to a demographic that is underserved. It's a sports space in the television content space, right? These young, predominantly male, very interested in technology. Their whole life revolves around it. And they need a sport that fits their primary interest, which is a sort of tech 
focused lifestyle. We call them tech setters. They, they really sort of live for this. And there's 800 million of them around the world. And I would say, you know, these are people who will hang on every iPhone leak rumor. They'll read every one of Elon Musk's tweets, but they don't care how far Tom Brady can throw a football. And so they need a sport that actually resonates with them. So I think our investors are excited that we're speaking to that generation. I think that the fan base we've built is a testament to that. And I think the other thing you're excited about sort of from more of a business standpoint is, is some of the unique qualities to drone racing that I think are differentiated from us coming in saying, hey, we've invented a new form of sport. But even that alone, like we're doing something quite different. I think one of them is what I talked about, the technology. We created some of the core technology that makes this possible. So we have patents around some of our tech that really make, there's a reason we are the drone racing league. We're the global professional circuit. It's because we really enabled this technologically, which means we kind of own some of the core tech that makes this possible. We own some of the sport. There are some barriers to entry. So it's, they're not, there aren't going to be 50 drone racing leagues next year because people don't have the tech to do it. And I think the other thing is like, there are really unique things to the sport, right? It's, it's a sport that you can perfectly simulate. So we have the DRL simulator. It's a video game. You can download it on Xbox or PlayStation or Steam, and you can play it and you can learn how to race a drone. You can compete with your friends. And we even do tryouts through it. We do tryouts every year. Pilots can compete. And the winner of the tryout gets to be a pro drone racer. And so that idea of a sport that sort of you can scale infinitely on the participatory, I want to try it. What's this like? Even I want to become a pro through digital means. And then, you know, the pro sport itself, which we scale by putting it on TV, that's pretty unique. I mean, there aren't, we've struggled to find another sport where we can really say you can go from amateur to pro entirely through simulation. And that's a quality that makes this very appealing for people who are interested in where is the intersection of the metaverse of simulation of robotics and the way fans experience with sports are going to change over the next 10 years. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of the points I was going to make around, which is not only do you not have to be six, eight, like a basketball player to play in the NBA and athletic, you, you this kind of opens the door to hundreds of billions or billions of other people that want to maybe be a professional athlete or be on TV or, or have an audience and stuff like that. But it's global by nature, right? And it's also a very quick hitting style type of sport in my mind, right? It's not necessarily a long drawn out thing. Like I always joke about the NFL and the MLB, and they're obviously massive sports leagues, but 90% of the game is spent sitting around. You're not doing anything. They're in between pitches, in between plays, et cetera. So it's a completely different format to that. And I think that's where we're headed. All the data shows us that everything is instant now. They want things immediately. So I think that's part of it. But I want to touch a little more on the on the conversation around some of the tech that you guys have built, right? You mentioned it as kind of a barrier to entry and something that investors are excited about. Can you talk to me exactly like what some of that is, right? Is that is it the actual drones? I think you guys are building the actual drones that you're racing with. So maybe that's part of it. Is it how you guys are showing the the races? Is it the commercialization of it through video? Just talk me through kind of exactly what you mean by that. Yeah. So we have a couple different verticals of tech that we focus on, but I think one of the things we emphasize is if you watch a DRL race on TV, all the tech that's there, we created specifically for this purpose. So we build the drones from scratch. So these are ultra high performance racing drones. But they're ultra high performance racing drones that are meant to compete in a global circuit of many races over the course of a season. So I often say these are sort of like the Formula One car of drones. Very specialized for the purpose of not only going very fast, but of getting through an entire season of racing. So they're durable, they're field repairable, but they're ultra high performance, but they have to be visual because the fans need to be able to see them. So you're balancing a lot of different factors to make, quote unquote, the perfect professional racing drone. But it's very differentiated from a drone you would say 
you know, used for cinematography or you'd sell to the public, right? These things go from zero to 90 miles an hour in less than a second. Very specialized drones that need to be able to operate in all the environments we put them in. But then there's the radio system. So you need to connect those drones to the pilots. And it's a very specialized radio problem. You need ultra low latency video connection to the pilots. You know, when you're flying something remotely that's going 90 miles an hour, if there's any delay in that video, you're going to hit a wall before you see it. You need a robust connection because they can't lose control of the drone or lose their video for even a fraction of a second. And you want to be able to do that anywhere in the world on all kinds of different frequencies in environments where you're going to have thousands of fans present with their own technology. So it, it can't be a system that is interfered with even when people have all their devices you know, maybe even drone equipment sitting in the audience. So you've got this sort of very specialized radio problem. And then timing and scoring. So it's very hard to track a drone in three-dimensional space. And in sports, it's really important to track and score very accurately and in real time. We have fleet management technology. So we're, we're managing a fleet of 600 drones that we bring to every event. We need to be doing diagnostics on those drones to make sure they're all ready to fly, to make sure that they're all fair, what happened to them in the air, you know, we delve even further in. We, we obviously built our own simulator, as I mentioned. We have AI and autonomy technology. So, and then you take all of those different pieces and you need to put that into an industrialized stack that needs to all work together perfectly. You can't have glitches. And I would say that, you know, the real challenge here is when it comes to technology and sports, it needs to be perfect and invisible, right? If, if the drones are falling out of the sky because the tech isn't working, it's not a sport anymore. It becomes a spectacle and fans very quickly lose interest. You know, if in car racing, the cars fell apart in three quarters of the races, you wouldn't watch because it wouldn't be a sport. It would be demolition derby. So this is something completely different. So we need to have this tech that enables this incredible futuristic thing. I mean, people flying robots at 90 miles an hour through the air, through incredible spaces, palaces and, you know, buildings and stadiums. And it needs to work perfectly every time on demand. It's quite differentiated from, say, consumer technology, where you have a lot more tolerance for failure you're not going to put it in the most demanding environments that isn't fair for it to operate. We have to be perfect all the time. And then we got to take it all over the world. So it's a very specialized problem. And it's been exciting to solve it and to be able to do races in front of thousands of people and, and have them have that magic moment where the tech is invisible, but it's enabling something they've never seen before. I had a feeling when I asked you about the proprietary tech stack, that was going to be a loaded question. And it, and it was, but I appreciate you going through it. I want to talk a little bit more about the business side of this. If you could talk a little bit about how you guys make money today and how that might change in the future, I think that could be super interesting. Yeah. So there's a simpler answer I can give you, which is that we, our business is the business of sports and our business model is identical to any sports league you can think of, whether it's the NBA or Formula One or MotoGP, anyone. We all do the same thing. We make money through a combination of sponsorship, media rights, live events, and effectively product licensing. And we do all of those things. You see us, we have amazing partners who are part of our league and, and sponsor our events. We put our media on TV and in digital formats around the world. We do live events with huge audiences and, you know, selling t-shirts and everything else you do at live events. And then, you know, we have licensed products out there where we put the DRL brand on someone else's products in a partnership. And so we do all of those things and all sports leagues do the same things. We just do them in different combinations. I think the, the bigger you get, the more important things like media rights become. I think, you know, in the early days for all sports, things like partnerships and live events are much more important because they are more accessible and you sort of can more directly, you know, work with businesses on that. So that's what we do. So all of this cool technology and magic ends up in a very traditional business model. And the good news about that is there's, there's lots of lessons to learn from the industry and there's lots of ways for us to continue to evolve that business model when we bring in unique elements through our technology. 
Do you guys sell the patented drones that you guys make currently for the competition to retail or no? No. So we don't sell any of our technology. And I'd say like the drones are a good example. It's, it's kind of like a Formula One card. You don't have a Formula One card dealer on your street corner, but you can go buy a Formula One card, tear on streets. And there's a good reason for that, which is they're not, they're not built for the streets. They're not, you know, these aren't drones that are built for you to go out and film a video with or, or even race in a park with your friends, right? These are, you know, in the same way that you wouldn't take a Formula One car and say, I'm going to get on track and live around my friends because it would be very dangerous. You know, these are very high performance racecraft and they're built for a very specific purpose. So I think that's why, you know, sometimes people ask me buy the drone. The answer is that no, but in the same way, same reason you can't buy a Formula One car, even if you really love cars. Yeah. And Liberty Media is an investor. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. So I'm assuming they're, they're excited too about the path that this can follow a similar nature of Formula One because Formula One has a lot of similar attributes, right? It's this kind of far reaching thing that people feel is almost superhuman to some degree. And I think that anyone who has either driven a drone or flown a drone or seen the videos realizes that this is highly specialized and it's really difficult to do. And then there's this global nature of it too, which is one of the things that I've always loved about Formula One, which is similar to you guys. I don't think people realize how big the sports are, right? Formula One, I think last year they averaged over 90 million viewers per race, right? So that's essentially a Super Bowl globally every single weekend for 25 weekends a year. I don't know how many races you guys put on a year, but I think I read that you had almost 85 million people stream the races last year. So this is already a pretty big business, but if you could talk a little bit about how big it could get, right? Like what your roadmap looks like for growth, I think that could be interesting also. Yeah. And I think, look, I think we looked at Formula One as a good example. We, you know, we're doing kind of the equivalent of a Formula One race in our season that, that they're doing every weekend. We want to be doing that every weekend. And we believe the sport can be as big as Formula One. That, that's really our ambition to be alongside the great racing leagues of the world, like Formula One and MotoGP. And a circuit of races, we're going around the world and every weekend you're having a massive event with lots of viewership and lots of live engagement. And we see the potential because we see it in what we do today. Um, it's a global sport. We see engagement everywhere. As you say, we've got 80 plus million streamers watching a single season. So we're, we're gathering it. And I think what's exciting for us is, is the people who are watching our sport are young, right? They're, they're teenagers or people in their 20s and early 30s who are engaging with the sport who are really excited. You know, and I think... That's one of the challenges a lot of sports face is that they're getting a lot of engagement, with, but it's with an older demographic. And are they replacing that demographic with young fans who are going to go the distance with them? So that's one of the biggest differences is, is we see the longevity of what we're doing. We're just at the beginning of our journey, the lifetime relationship we're going to have with these fans and others. So we're, we're super excited about that and, and see the potential to you know really be something that people talk about in those same echelons with other incredible leagues in the future. All right. I got a stat for you. I literally just Googled it right now as we're talking because it reminded me of what Formula One has done over the last decade, right? So I think everyone knows the story about how their previous management didn't necessarily care about replacing older fans with younger fans, right? There's this famous quote where Bernie essentially said, like, I don't care about young fans. They don't buy Rolexes. Like, they're not going to spend money at the events. We don't care about them. It kind of gets made fun of now, but it was certainly relevant at the time. But Liberty Media on their last earnings call, or maybe it was two earnings call ago, said that the average age of a Formula One fan has dropped from 36 years old when they bought the business, I think in 2017, to 32 years old today, right? So they've done a, an incredible job of being able to drive that average fan down. But if you look across other major sports leagues, the ones that everyone would know here in North America, the average age is much, much, much higher, right? The PJ Tour is kind of an outlier to the upside, but then you have... Major League Baseball at 57 years old, the NFL at 50, NHL at 49, and the NBA at 42. So it's really difficult to balance that, right? Where you're you're 
attracting a younger fan base and continuously replacing older fans with younger fans, but then you're monetizing it to a correct perspective. And I think that a sport like this has a natural advantage to do that probably, just given the demographic of who uses drones today. Maybe that becomes more difficult over time. But is this something that you guys actively have to think about now, or it's just something that is a byproduct of the technology and the the infrastructure that you guys use today? I, I think in stage for us, it's still very much a byproduct, right? I mean, the, the people who naturally gravitate to sport are people who've grown up on video games, right? So that's a very specific generation who know about drones, who are excited about it, right? And and for whom this novel sort of technocentric lifestyle is, you know, people talk about digital natives. And I think that's really who we're talking about here, people who grew up an environment where technology was part of every day of their life, right? That speaks to a very specific demographic. But the other thing I like to talk about is sort of like, I founded DRL seven years ago, right? And so there are kids who were, you know, whatever they were, nine, 10 years old, really just becoming sort of people and, and taking in the world who are now 17, 18 years old, for whom professional drone racing has effectively always existed. Right. This isn't some novel concept of like, you know, if you if you were 50 years old when, when DRL started, and you're 57. And you're like, yeah, I, sometime in my life, drone racing became a thing. Isn't that weird for our fans? Like drone racing has effectively always been part of their life. It's not weird. It wasn't this thing that was invented during the lifetime. It's sort of always been around. And I think that's a really powerful thing when you think about how people perceive the sport. I think about, you know, in the early days of DRL, we, we got compared a lot to esports because it was so popular at the time. And I think there were a lot of people in the traditional sports world and the media world who were really struggling. They just didn't get esports. They, they would say that. They'd be like, I don't get it. Kids watch people play video games. And you'd look, you'd be like, yeah, but I, I know these kids were really into it. They've watched people play video games their entire lives. There's nothing weird about that to them. Whereas that's a weird concept to you because you didn't do that. Video games was something that people did alone. It certainly wasn't a spectator activity. But I think that that's one of the things that's going on in this world is when something becomes native to a generation, when they are, it is effectively always existed in their world, their excitement about it, the barriers to getting them to engage with it, to want to be fans of it, it just go way, way down. How expensive is it for a person to get into, if they want to, if they see one of your races, right? And they say, Hey, I want to be a world champion in the drone racing league. How expensive is it or how difficult is it for them to get started? Is the point of entry basically your guys simulation in your video game or is there another way they go about it? Yeah, no, it's, it's less than $20 to get into the sport. You can download the game, you can play. And, you know, we've had pilots who won a contract to be a professional drone racer who effectively came up entirely through simulation. I had very little experience with real drones. And that's that's awesome. That's what I love about this sport is anyone in the world can decide they're going to be a pro drone racer and go out and do it. A lot of folks, you know, who, who do it through simulation, obviously, they immediately want to go do it in real life, you know, and they're building their own drones and flying it. And even that it's you can order parts off the Internet. You you learn to assemble your own drone. There's a real sort of STEM education part of deciding you're going to be a drone pilot. You're building and repairing your own drone. And they're off doing it. So it's not, a, it's not a particularly expensive sport to get into. And I think that the existence of simulation really lowers that barrier from having to go out and buy a drone and crash it and repair it as you learn. And you can really learn the mechanics of flying and then perfect it in real life. Gotcha. So I have two more questions and then I'll let you go. The first one is, talk to me a little bit about the last season. I feel like I saw you guys all over TikTok, at least. I know the social side of it has really blown up over the last year or so. Just talk to me about what you guys saw last season and how it went. Yeah, last season was an incredible season for us. I guess we, when, you're, when you're only seven years old, every season is sort of this monumental moment. But last season was particularly special for us. I think coming out of COVID, we were excited to get back to it. And, and a lot of things happened last season. We saw very significant growth in our viewership. 
So we saw huge jumps in our global broadcast viewership and, and streaming viewership, things like our championship race, where we saw you know, double digit increases in the, in the number of people watching it. So you just saw this, this rush of engagement that really thrilled us. And then that was mirrored on the social side, right? We, we had this huge growth in social followers. In particular, on TikTok, we're over 4 million fans on TikTok at this point. We have more fans on TikTok than, than Formula One and a lot of other major sports. So we saw ourselves passing you know, far more established brands. But I think the even more exciting thing, and I think it ties back to everything we've talked about, about drones in the zeitgeist, the video and everything. If you, if you go into TikTok, there's 9 billion drone video views at this point. And TikTok tells you sort of what's driving that. And DRL is right at the top of that list. So we're sort of this lightning rod for all this passion and excitement around drone racing. And the idea that 9 billion videos are being consumed, the, you know, that really are in the broad ecosystem of our world. And the DRL is sort of what we want to be. We want to be the pinnacle of that activity. We want to be the world championship of the competitive version of that that gives people, you know, an, another way to engage with it. We're just so excited to see that kind of engagement and those kind of stats come out of a season. We also returned to live racing, you know, after a year where we were unable to do live events for obvious reasons. You know, we we were back in Vegas this year at the beginning of January, opening night of CES, thousands of people in front of the T-Mobile Arena, did an incredible live event. It was so heartwarming to be standing in front of a crowd of thousands of our fans cheering again after a bit of a hiatus from that. And I think I'm thrilled to see the return of live racing and, and can't wait to continue to roll that out in 2022 and 2023. So I got a stat here for you, and I hope that I get a DM from someone on your social team and they thank me for shouting them out. But I want you to understand how important TikTok is, okay? I don't use TikTok a lot, and I know it gets a lot of crap for being the platform that it is in this stuff. But I read this the other day, and I thought it was just a, a mind-blowing statistic when it came to the growth and the importance of TikTok going into the future. And it said, last year, TikTok was the most visited website on the internet. It took down Google after like 10 or 15 years that Google had been the number one website on the internet. So more people visited tiktok.com than any website in the world last year. And then they have 1 billion monthly active users right now. They're banned in India, right? And it was launched five years ago. So that's one out of every five internet users currently uses TikTok on a monthly basis. And then if you look at how much they're actually using it, the average user spends 26 hours a month on TikTok which is nearly, that's basically equivalent to Facebook's or Meta's entire stack, right? From Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, all of their apps. It's essentially equivalent to what one person spends on TikTok per month. So incredible, incredible platform from a, obviously an adoption standpoint, a usage standpoint, et cetera. But I think leagues like yours are really going to benefit from that because not only have you built an audience very early on and you're able to continue to grow that and drive that, but it's perfectly built for this, right? It's shorter video clips, it's quick action, it's it's what people want to see from that context. And I think I think it's really impressive. I think it's great. I just echo exactly what you said. Like people out there who are are trying to wrap their mind around all this, you just described the power of TikTok. If TikTok is something that doesn't inherently seem powerful to a listener, like it's worth re-examining that. And then you take DRL, right? We have four million fans of TikTok. It's like more than F1, NASCAR, the NHL, MLS, right? So you, you have this really powerful platform and you see this changing behavior. We have young fans, right, who are engaging on this platform. And the stat that you pair with that, that to me is so powerful is 70% of our fans don't follow any of the big five sports that we know here in the States, right? So you've got this whole other world going on of engagement, people following us in social platforms, these platforms that are becoming the most important social platform in their life. And there you see DRL shining. 
right? We are outshining leagues that are much older, much larger, who make a lot more money than we do, have been around for 100 years, and we can outperform them. And then you have billions of videos used about drones. Like something magical is going on here for the marketers out there who are saying, what's going on in the world? What's going on with these young people? Like it's right there. You can see it. This is something incredible going on. And if it isn't in your face every day, it might mean you're not looking at it. But we're looking at TikTok every day being like, wow, the world is changing in front of our eyes and we're riding the wave forward. It's very cool to see. It's amazing. Yeah. So my last question would just be around how difficult this has been to build this business to the point where it is today. If you could just talk about if there's a big challenge that you faced or a big problem that you ran into or a point in time where you weren't completely sure that the business would make it, anything along those lines, I'm sure that you've you've faced some challenges along the way. No, it's been super easy. No challenges really. You know, no nights and weekends or anything. No, I mean it's been it's 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 effectively impossible. I mean, I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, I, I'd tell you that if I knew how hard this would be when I started it, I wouldn't have done it because I just would have thought it was impossible. I mean, you're talking about building a brand new sport. And we all know how hard that is. We've seen a lot of sports leagues launch and fail over the last few years, even in very established sports like football. Then you're laying it with novel technology that doesn't exist. It needs to be perfect because if it fails, it, it ruins your product. Then you need to take it to a global audience in a massively changing media landscape where every day the landscape shifts on you and you need to figure it out and you need to get people excited about it and you need to build genuine fandom. You know, we are a technology company with a media company and a sports league. We need to do all of those things perfectly. So we have broken the number one rule of entrepreneurship, which is pick one thing and do it really well. We had to do at least three things and we had to do them each perfectly because if any of them fell down, it wouldn't work. Yeah, there were moments, you know, certainly in the beginning, we worked on the technology. I mean, I remember looking my first investors in the eye and saying, look, we're going to try to build this tech. There is no promise this tech, no one's built it. And there could be a very good reason. I could come back to you in six months and say, you know what, actually, it's impossible to build a radio system that does what it needs to do to make this real, right? All you have is sci-fi movies right now. No one's actually done this in real life. You know, and you got to get it on TV and you don't, until you put it on TV in front of millions of people, like you don't know if anyone, people may look and go, this is cool. I just don't need this in my life. We were really fortunate Ted. people said, wow, this is what I've been missing. You take so many risks. And that's why like, you know, for me, these moments where I get to stand, especially at our live events, when I get to stand in an arena and see our fans, holding up a pilot journey, screaming their guts out for some pilot who's competing for his last chance to win the world championship. It's just so, it's so powerful because we, we weathered those challenges. We overcame those obstacles, the whole team, you know, bringing together all these different subject matter expertise across tech and media, live events, sports leagues, business development, and sort of you, you land all those planes at once into a moment where the fans get to just be fans and just get to be having the time of their life. It's very satisfying, but yeah, I'm so glad we've gotten to where we are because it was definitely a very challenging road. Entrepreneurship is hard. That is a, a fact by now, I think most people realize. So that's awesome though. Congratulations on all the success you guys have had. Lastly, where can I send people to find more out about the Drone Racing League online? Sure. So yeah, you can go to our website, drl.io. You can learn all about us and links there to our simulator, to our content. That's a great place to start. If you're an Xbox or PlayStation user, you can search for Drone Racing League and you'll, you'll find our sim pretty easily. And then obviously TikTok. Go over to TikTok, search Drone Racing League. You will find us. You'll see our videos. And you know these are videos getting watched by tens of millions of people. And you'll see why people are so excited about what's going on in, in drone racing, in the world of drones generally, what's going on with our pilots who are off creating amazing content. So TikTok is a fun way to kind of get 
immediately immersed in some of the visual, wild, engaging parts of what we're doing. I love it. I'm going to have to at least check out a race. I usually caveat it with that. I'm going to try to actually attempt the sport or whatever it is when I talk to someone like you, but maybe I'll have to start with the simulator first. I don't want to hurt anyone or hurt myself. So I'll definitely come check out a race though. And uh, I'm super excited that you agreed to come on the podcast because this was awesome, man. Thank you so much for doing it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.